we have combed over every line of copy, every interaction on the website over and over and over again for the last four years to make it really seamless and easy to understand. Because the last thing that you want to do, the last thing that anyone wants to do is make their will. I can guarantee you that. We're kind of hardwired to think that you're not going to die. So you have to create a real sort of exceptional product experience to get over that hesitance. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm joined by Dan Garrett. Dan is the co-founder of a tech firm called Fairwill. They are the UK's leading tech firm in the death space. He tells me the backstory. They've set out to bring technology and customer experience to a time in our lives when people find it very difficult. So wills, funerals, probate, to try and make this industry that really hadn't evolved at all since the 1850s and bring it into the 21st century. Now they do more than 10% of the wills in the UK they offer cremations for 20% the price that traditional funeral directors are charging. They've just raised 20 million pounds in a series B and they have an absolutely awesome recruitment process. So I talked to Dan about a bit about the tech and, and about the, the death business, but we spent quite a lot of time talking about how he's built a recruitment engine that gets it right 80% of the time. So that's fantastic. And he's got some great business book recommendations at the end. I had an absolute blast chatting to Dan today. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm Dan Garrett. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Fairwill. Dan, lovely to have you. What does Fairwill do? We help people to deal with death, which is not necessarily the most common answer. And there aren't many tech companies that uh, sort of foray into this space, but we started about four years ago, and the first product that we launched was online will writing. And I'll go into a bit about how a bunch of kind of relatively young people get into that. But we started on online wills. We're now the biggest will writer in the UK, and we write about 10% of uh, all new wills. Then last year, we launched two new products. One of them is probate, which is kind of all the legal and financial stuff that you need to go through when you're dealing with a death. And in December of last year, we uh, started doing cremations nationwide, which again is quite an interesting move for a tech company. So to be four years old and to be doing the largest will writer in the UK. So uh, there's loads of questions. Why wills? Well, yeah. So, so probably to answer the question of why wills and why this business in the first place, maybe I can give you a bit of a bit of a kind of brief career autobiography for me. So I went to university and did maths and engineering i really loved the way that you know figuring out how stuff worked and a bit of a kind of miss world aspiration wanted to you know just build and make things that made the world a better place but very much did it in kind of heavy industry and engineering rather than anything 
technological. And it was all completely theoretical, you know, never ended up actually kind of building anything or making anything. So then I went more in a kind of design direction, which is something I'd always wanted to do. I kind of briefly worked for McLaren, a car company, designed a cup holder uh, in a very expensive, very expensive car. (laughs) I worked in some kind of like fashion bits of work. And then I went to the Royal College of Arts and did a two-year master's degree that split between Tokyo and New York and London. And it was the first year of this course, and it basically brought together people from science, design, and business. So kind of really multidisciplinary. And the type of design that I'd wanted to do, you know, having been on the aesthetic end of design, was this sort of tricky human problem solving, you know, the types of areas and spaces and businesses where a management consultancy sort of linear problem solving way of doing things hadn't really made a difference. And when I was based in Japan, I was was in an old people's home for six months as a design researcher. And we had, you know, this amazing government-sponsored research project, anthropologists, you know, ethnographers, designers. And I felt like we completely failed in our job as designers. You know, all we focused on was the superficiality of aging. It was getting in and out of bed and up and down the stairs rather than the fact we were surrounded by a bunch of people who are in the last throes of life. You know, didn't have their friends or family around. They were terrified of dying. And we didn't even get close to broaching the topic. It was more how do you, you know, eat more comfortably or sit more comfortably or whatever, which is really just you know, not even that high up on lots of people's list of worries at that point. So I came back to the UK and I spent a couple of months in the death industry. So I organized 15 funerals. I got a qualification in will writing and I filed a couple of probate applications for friends of mine whose grandparents had had died. That's always just been a way that I've like researched stuff or you just want to see it firsthand. What does it actually feel like to do this as a consumer? I'm overcome with this. You sent an email out to people saying, does anyone have any relatives who've died? I'd like to do probate for you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I was just like, this is the most amazing industry. Not because it's, it is basically the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched by technology which is really strange. And it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible. It's a huge kind of multi-hundred billion dollar business globally. It isn't because it's technologically unfeasible. You know, there's loads of parts of will writing or probate that can be really effectively automated. It is because there is this kind of profound human aversion to talking about and dealing with death. So you, know, so you have such a kind of like emotionally rich, difficult, challenging area of life that so profoundly affects people who not only are going through it themselves, but the people they leave behind. And the industry looks and feels like it did in Victorian times. So as much as there are parts of our company that where we really effectively use technology, the real challenge of building a company to do with death is that the brand, the existing brand of death and dying, if you say to someone or if your podcast listeners are like, oh, there's a podcast about a guy who does wills and probate, the thing that pops into your head is this kind of gray, drab, Victorian image of what it's going to feel like. And as a result, no one engages with it. No one plans for it properly. You know, no one organizes a funeral that's the type of celebration of your life that most people say they want to have when you interview them. And as and you know, then you have these extortionately overpriced services that are mismatched to families who actually really need the money or support at a time when they're going through something so difficult. So really, as much as we're a tech company, I think that the kind of origin of the opportunity that we saw was a completely underserved market where customer centricity went out the window in 1850. <laughs> well, people say you need to write a will. What are you going to do next? Well, you've, then you've got to go and make an appointment with your solicitor, assuming you have one. 
Yeah, and who has? I mean, who has a solicitor in the first place? Yeah, and and then make an appointment with a solicitor. It's just like all of a sudden there's just this huge barrier of where do you start and will it be any good and how do you know? Yeah, completely. And and as much as we have a really kind of design and product focused organization, it's always been the sort of the origin of where we started. I mean, I, I said much before I went to the Royal College of Art, the first version of Farewell, which is an online will writing website was my the thing I presented at the final sort of show at the Royal College of Art. Me and my co-founder, Tom, is our chief product and technology officer. And, you know, you're talking about literally an art gallery. There's paintings and sculptures. And we had made this kind of beautiful website for writing wills. And that kind of design and brand approach to the problem really resonated with the, the market we were going after. And 18 months from then, we were the biggest will writer in the UK. So it kind of took off super fast as a result of the approach, I think. What do you do? Do you advertise or do you grow through word of mouth? Word of mouth's always been really big for us. We do advertise a lot. So we've done everything from you know, Facebook and paid search through to national TV campaigns. Um, partnerships have been really big for us. So about kind of 50% of our customers have come via partnerships on the will side of things. A big chunk of that is actually working with charities. Lots of charities all the way from you know, Cancer Research UK on the top end of things to smaller charities like the British Ecological Society or the British Tinnitus Association. Lots of them, a huge proportion of their income comes from what's called legacy fundraising. So it's people leaving gifts and wills to the charities. This is kind of you know three billion pounds a year it's left in, in legacy funding. And what we started doing really early on with Macmillan was helping them to kind of run and optimize and track these legacy fundraising campaigns. So, you know, if you imagine how hard a job is that as a, as a marketer, if you're in a conventional charity, you run a campaign, you find out if it was successful 20 years later because you want someone to make a will, include a gift in it, and then you're waiting for 20 years. And what we've been able to do because of the way that we do wills is kind of like real-time reporting for all of these charities. So, you know, it's, it's one of those crazy things about starting a business where did I, I don't even heard of legacy fundraising when I started the business. Absolutely not. Did I know anything about it when we closed our first deal? Almost absolutely not. And now we've got to the point, you know, where we're working with close to 100 charities around the UK. We've helped to raise money for almost, I think, close to 3,000 charities around the UK. And in total, pledged through our wills is about 300 million pounds so far. So, you know, you start something and then there's this kind of corollary opportunity that springs up. And yeah, I think we're really proud of what being able to do on the charity front. Then we also work with banks, mortgage brokers, life insurers, you know, the kind of people who are right place, right time to say to somebody, you might want to think about getting a will here. Yeah. And who have no vested interest in pushing that work down to the existing channels through. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you're if you're a, a modern bank and you want to offer a good sort of 360 degree digital service and you're suddenly saying call this geezer and set up an appointment and spend 600 quid to do a will it's just kind of out of the bullseye of how they want to sort of link together all the rest of their services and so it 600 pounds is what it costs you to do a will how much does it cost with fair wills what's your 90 pounds so 6x cheaper 6x cheaper and you know that's the same on our other products as well we do probate for 595 pounds average in the market's about three thousand pounds so again kind of like you know five six times cheaper we do cremations for under a thousand pounds average in the market's about four thousand nine hundred so the fascinating thing there is we have a completely 
different cost base. If you take the average funeral company, the vast majority of their cost is like, just a funeral industry in itself is just fascinating because I could spend like an entire hour talking about the history <laughs> of the funeral industry. Um, <laughs> why are you shaking your head at me? Um, yeah, the, the, but, you know, it's, the growth strategy for them has always been you go to Solihull and you buy up. That's an example. Sorry, it's not a specific strategy. Go to Solihull, you buy up all the funeral directors and you just push up the prices because, you know, you've just lost someone you love. You've driven past. I'm sure you can visualize in your head whatever your local funeral director is. You've driven past a thousand times. You wander in there. You don't shop around. Like 85% of people don't shop around for a funeral. And then you walk out having spent six and a half, seven thousand pounds on a product where you've had no consideration period that in no way often relates to, you know, the wishes or sensibilities of the person who's died. You know, can you think about any other product where on a 24-hour purchase, you go from not having thought about it to spending £7,000 without shopping around. It's incredible. But I haven't had to plan one, so I have no experience. And I guess that's the thing is, until you have to buy one, you've never bought one. And it might be you never, and it might be you never buy one again. Completely, completely. And you're also, it's not like you're in optimum decision-making headspace as well. You might have just lost your husband of 50 years or parent or a best friend or something you know making decisions like that when you're grieving is a tough ask for anyone my only sort of the only similar example i have is two male friends of mine their dogs died or they they went to the vet with their dog and the dog was put down and while they were there the vet said would you like me to cremate the dog and would you like the ashes in an urn and four or five weeks later both of them said to me why did i want the dog's ashes in an urn like i feel as though i got abused Whilst I was there, like I had no decision-making capability, and and I would say yes to I would say yes to anything, completely. And you know, do you want to look like a penny pincher when there's when they're saying we've got the pauper option where we can like dump them in a cardboard, whatever, and they'll be really you know soft like soft selling the platinum package where you have a bunch of stuff that doesn't relate to anything that your grandparent would have wanted, so. I, don't, I really don't want to take a pop shot at the at funeral directors. For the most part, they are kind, incredibly high EQ people who are great at dealing with bereaved families. But the business model of it is, by the time you step in the front door of a funeral director, you have £1,200 of rent on your bill. You've got £1,400 of staff cost. And you just have to rack up the prices because otherwise you're not going to be able to afford the growth strategy of high street funeral directors, which is highly kind of acquisitive and just involves building these geographical monopolies where you kind of dot funeral directors around in the town. Whereas ours is, we don't have any physical space. We deal with far more funerals per head in our team because we haven't got people sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for someone to walk through the front door. And as a result, we're able to offer our funerals at 20% of the price that the rest of the market operates at, which is a huge difference. And this, I've got to say that people who use our funeral services this isn't people looking to like save a buck it's people who know that their parents didn't care about doing a kind of horse and cart funeral and they wanted them to spend the money on we've had everything from fireworks on top of the south downs to chicken nuggets and champagne on a beach where someone's dad grew up it's like these kind of really heartwarming thoughtful personal funerals that are not just spending a load of money in a local authority crematorium. Okay. So, you know, when you, well, the moment you said that you did it, I, my immediate reaction was that you did the, the thousand pounds was, 
you know, it, it was it was a functional thing rather than you actually you arranged a funeral. So how you, you've we got don't, to- no, no, you're totally right. That you're, to, you're totally right. We only do the cremation. So the, the service that we offer now is direct cremations, which is precisely as you describe. It's uh, we collect the body, we carry out the cremation, and then hand deliver back the ashes. And then it's totally up to the family what they want to do. And that's totally different to how the rest of the sector operates, which is you're going to have this kind of weird, weird party sort of run by the world's worst party planner or funeral director. They're kind of cross-selling into the fact that you need to do something with a body. And it's like, hold on a minute. That's just, you know, it's, it's a bit like what's happening with weddings in the last 20 years. The thing that matters to us when someone when someone calls us and they've lost someone who's close to them is finding out about that person. You know, where do they grow up? What do they love to do? How would you like to remember them? And weirdly, the thing that we're selling them is nothing to do with the service that we carry out. We're selling them, you know, maybe selling's a bit strong, but we're hopefully helping them to really think of the type of memorial that will, you know, have a big impact on their grieving process and on bringing their families together. And then we take care of the body. Okay, right. So you're all all you're doing is you're taking through a process of of visualizing the memorial that they go and arrange, and you take care of the bit that they can't do without you. Exactly, and that's completely different to you know if you're a funeral director, someone walks into your front door, you want them to either take the gold package or the platinum one, and it's like yes, we got another one on the platinum one, and now we're going to have some triangle sandwiches in in Slough Crematorium. <laughs> Just the idea, the idea fills me with joy. Yeah, and exactly, exactly, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that as well. Like if that if that's what you actually want, if you want that sort of traditional service, great, that's amazing. But from our perspective, our role is to help the family come up with what is the right memorial service for them rather than predetermine that they've got to pick from one of three options. And does the infrastructure the infrastructure already exist or you've got to go and I mean, you know, do crematoriums have APIs? I mean, how do you what have you built? No, sadly not. It would be great if they did. So what we do is a kind of customer experience side of it. So it's basically from first phone call, how we position the service to then understanding and talking to the family and then coordinating with supply, like a network of suppliers we use all around the country who do the logistics. So picking up a body, working with networks for crematoria so that we're carrying out the crematorium and then the same logistics supplies to pass back the ashes and what we do really uniquely differently is all throughout the process we're communicating with the family almost on a kind of daily or multiple times a day basis so they know exactly what's going on all the way through to getting the ashes back so the actual kind of hardcore logistics of it is like you know that's not what we specialize in there's no reason why we can do that better than than companies that have been doing it for 100 years but similarly there's no reason why someone who's got a crematorium and who's got a van is going to be amazing at crafting customer experiences or communicating with customers when they're going through something so difficult. So that's where our real speciality is. It's like the design and the brand and the experience of communication with customers to make them feel supported when they're going through something so hard. The actual logistics side of it is not our bag. And that's why we work with people who are great at it. So are funeral directors also suppliers? Uh, in some cases, we work with some funeral directors who, you know, they won't deal with the customer, we still deal with the customer, but, you know, they might be doing some of the logistics. But for the most part, most funeral directors want to be doing the kind of bells and whistles service and planning and whatever, because that's where they can charge the most money. 
a whole bit of the economy I didn't even know anything about. Completely, completely. Yeah. And when you did when farewells, how do you going back to that? What did it not become digital because you had to sign bits of paper and for a long time? Because I know things like land registry are just about to accept an electronic signature. So there's stuff that has kept solicitors in the process for quite a long time. So when we first launched our product, I remember speaking to someone from a legal technology magazine and they said, oh, something, something along, the line of, uh, along the lines of, you're the 20th online wills business I've, I've interviewed, <laughs> like you're the, which made me feel really special, but yeah, you're the 20th online wills business I've ever interviewed. What's the technology that you're using or whatever that's going to make this different? And we have great technology. We have an incredibly good engineering and product team, but this isn't what's made us succeed isn't the technology side of it it is the brand and communication and quality of product experience that's made it really work it's got nothing to do with technology and i think you know the issue is in the past that you've had people who specialize in family law who are you know will writers or solicitors who've thought hold on a minute 95 percent of the wills that i write are essentially fairly similar i can turn this into an algorithm and slap it on a website and then everyone will come and use my service but the fact is, you know, I don't, have you have you made a will? Most most people have it kind of on the back of their to do list. And well, I started to, I started talking to you because I called up your website whilst we started talking, and I'm most of the way through completing a will whilst whilst we were whilst we were chatting at the beginning. Delighted that you're not concentrating on what I'm saying at all. But also, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you can seemingly do a good job while going through our site. So it, it literally takes 15 minutes for most people end to end. You can, I, I hope that as you're going through it, you can feel the quality of the design experience of it. And that's the real differentiator is, you know, we're not just a solicitor who's banged a website up. We have combed over every line of copy, every interaction on the website over and over and over again for the last four years to make it really seamless and easy to understand. Because the last thing that you want to do, the last thing that anyone wants to do is make their will. I can guarantee you that. We're kind of hardwired to think that you're not going to die. So you have to create a real sort of exceptional product experience to get over that hesitance. Yes. As somebody said to me the other day, everyone wants to go to heaven, but then nobody wants to die. And in there is a paradox. So the, but you also, you also have, uh, you hire differently, don't you? So you've got this sort of obsession around a customer experience and you've got a similar obsession about attracting talented staff. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we really do. It's one of the things that we're focused on most of all, right from the beginning. And so me and my co-founder, were really brilliantly trained in how to approach hiring by this woman called Michelle Coventry, who's a talent advisor to one of our seed investors, Kindred Capital. And, you know, I guess prior to meeting Michelle, my experience of either applying for jobs, I'd never hired anyone before. So it was just, okay, you fill something in and you go kind of go through a random application or whatever it is. But what we did is we don't use any external recruiters inside our team. And we kind of hire as a team. The majority of managers inside our company are really kind of high-level, well-trained technical recruiters. You know, that's like a competency we develop in people. So everything from sourcing candidates on LinkedIn. So if we put, a, put up a role, I'll take you through the process of it basically. So, so someone wants to someone wants to hire a new role. I'll give you an actual example of it. We're hiring a data analyst at the moment. The hiring manager for that role will fill in a role pitch essentially, and they'll take that to our leadership team. And that will go through everything from 
sent over a few good candidates and bad candidates to a full job spec for that person to how exactly they would be able to carry out their job to how you'd assess their performance over 12 months. And it's like, it's quite a painful thing to put together because you need to do a lot of thought. They'll pitch that to the leadership team. They'll get feedback on, could this bit be improved? Then we'll write a job spec. And when you're writing a job spec and you're like, you're know, more than welcome to read some of the ones on our site, it's like, that's a huge, it's an advert. It's not just hiring data person number 14 and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you've really got to inspire someone to be like, why is this a fascinating data challenge? Why is this, you know, the type, why should you work for us versus the hundred other companies that you've heard of in the London tech scene who aren't working in the death world that you feel, <laughs> you know, you feel hesitant about. So we really, we can really work hard to be like, okay, who would want to do this? And how can we make this the kind of the best next step in someone's career? So like those job specs will be like, some of them, you read them and think, God, I would want to, I would really, really want to do that job. If we're not writing job specs that are the perfect next job for someone in their career, then we haven't done good enough. We haven't done it well enough. What happens next is we source candidates into our kind of hiring system which is called workable and what you normally do is have a kind of hiring squad so let's say there's a hiring manager there are some of the colleagues this person will work with you might get someone from a different department who's interested in the role or wants to participate in it and we will literally sit on linkedin or go out via our networks and build a list of kind of 150 to 250 candidates which is like that takes really serious digging and part of it is the discussion as you're going through it of, does this person look like the right fit? Are they too senior? Are they too junior? This person, you know, might not have this skill. Is it really essential that we do it? By the time you've done that, you've got an entire team of people who are going to have to work with this person, like pumped up and excited. They've seen a few profiles they really like. They've reached out on LinkedIn and said, hey, I'm part of the hiring team for this role. Do you want to have a first chat? And that compared to just hiring someone and dumping them in a team where they didn't even know that you were hiring the role. And they're like, who the hell's, who the hell's this woman over here and what she's supposed to do? It's kind of like an organ transplant. Like part of it's finding great people, part of it's how they're adopted and onboarded into the organization. So the process after that is phone screening. We use a really particular hiring methodology that's incredibly consistent, rigorous, and fair. And then we'll create bespoke tasks to sort of test specific competencies for each role that we agree on beforehand. The other part of this is that we have a 100% acceptance ratio of offering someone a job and them accepting it. The reason, and you know, we're now about 100 people and that's super, super rare. And the reason is that all our hiring managers are really trained in the fact that like this is a sales process. If you want to attract the best candidates, they are going to have five other job offers and they're probably going to pay more than us as well. And people will have heard of them and it'll be glamorous and whatever. So all throughout this process is comprehensive note-taking, lots of questions and exploration about what exactly the candidate wants to do next in their career. And we only offer jobs to people where we're like pretty sure that we're offering something that's quite close to their dream job developmentally. So that, you know, everyone else might say, congratulations, you've got this job. Whereas we're able to say, oh, Dominic, you know, you said you wanted to go in this direction. And out of the hundred people that we met, I think that you're uniquely capable of doing this role, developing into a, you know, world-class version of whatever this role might be. So rather than just saying, hey, you've got the job, we're saying, yeah, yeah, sure, you've got the job, that's table stakes. What I'm excited about, why I'm offering this job in the first place is that in a year and a half, you're going to be doing this thing that you really want to do. 
and it's not a lie either. You know, you're, you're bothering to understand where someone wants to. Sometimes it's a lie. Sometimes it's like you're going to be the president of the United States. Yeah. yeah otherwise, to get to 100, you'd have hired three and a half thousand people at this point. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, I think it's just that difference in mentality of I've got a round hole and I need to put a round peg in it. To we've got this opportunity for someone to accelerate in their career. And we're going to find people for whom this is the best next step. And, you know, we might be, we've definitely done it in the past, offered jobs to people who we know are not going to be with us in a year and a half because they're going to veer off in a different direction, but we can do a year and a half of amazing work with them. So I think it's a kind of difference between like, I've got a problem now and you're going to solve it to you can be incredible in this direction. And right now we're aligned. Yeah, I think that tour of duty thing. I think is is fantastic rather than thinking we're going to hire this person and they're going to work with us for 40 years. Yeah, completely. Yeah, it's just, but I, I so often I meet people and they say, oh, there's a war on talent. You know, we can't hire great people. And then when I say, well, what do you do about it? They don't answer with your structured approach. They give me some bollocks and just say, oh, yeah, well, you're you know, like, we- oh, we need to switch recruiters. We need to find, we need to find a different talent agency or something. And it's like, this is the number one important thing to do if you start a company like me and my friend Tom who started the company we're getting to the point where to say we're obsolete is potentially unfair but we do the vast minority of the work so it's all about the people who are inside the organization and we kind of acknowledged that early on and thought if there's one key competency for a co-founding team or a leadership team at this point it is the ability to attract people like beyond your station that's all you need to do that's all i need to do is have the right people around us well and a players attract a players and so you know so if you're looking for that amazing person and and like you've cared enough to ask them to come in for an interview and then every single person they meet is amazing that will be a unique experience in their working career well and working for a manager who cares you know everyone says it's more important than money and yet people people say that but then don't leverage that in the way that you're that you're doing Totally. And like, you know, obviously we get tons of this completely wrong. And I'm sure if anyone's listening, if anyone's, if anyone's listening from the Farewell team, they're probably railing against their, railing against their phone or computer about, about how incorrect it is. But that's the theory anyway. <laughs> if you're at 100 now, what is your, do you, do you have a target for churn? Or do you, do, you, do you measure churn? We do measure churn. And we haven't yet set a target for it, but I think even so, lots of people like Google, even who are really kind of set a obviously a really great bar on hiring, just acknowledge the fact that you're not going to get it right every time. And there's companies like Enron who are famous for sort of stack ranking people and firing the bottom twenty percent once every six months or something. I don't think we want to get that quite that aggressive with it, but there naturally will be people over time who learn something about themselves so um, well maybe let me maybe ask you let, let me ask you a different question then so because you're setting a goal at the beginning for hiring for what great looks like a year out yeah so do you measure what proportion of people are great a year from the day you hire them yeah we i mean we definitely do yeah we we, we have a handle on the number of people who you know don't pass their probation or if we have to terminate a contract or they decide to leave that's all stuff that we and so how often do you how often do you get it how often do you reckon you get it right? I mean, even if you don't have a number, do you have a gut feel? I would say we get it really right probably 80% of the time, pretty right 10% of the time, and pretty wrong 10% of the time. Well, I mean that that is 
I would I think the numbers for the rest of the population are probably they get it they get it right 25% of the time. One in four hires meet their expectations six months in. The sad thing for most of those companies is they don't actually get rid of the ones that they didn't get right. No, completely, completely, completely. And, and you know, like the, I think there's this guilt of a manager as well. If you're managing someone who's underperformed, like our managers are the most empathetic, the kindest people I've ever met in my life. It's really hard if you have someone who's underperforming. And if you can't honestly see a way for that person to get back on track and do a really good job and be really happy, then it's like, you know, I know it's, I know it sounds trite and like it's coming from a company perspective, but that's not, you know, if it's not going to work in the long run, then it's right to call it now. It's like having a relationship with someone. If you don't believe it's going to work in the long run, then like, do the right thing now. And we've had, we've got a bunch of brilliant, talented, lovely people who've left us or been let go for one reason or another. And they're all in great jobs. They're all having a really good time, having a big impact on the companies that they work for. It's just sometimes it doesn't work out. Okay. And whilst we've been in lockdown, uh, you've had a successful Series B. Yeah, 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 totally. So, so, I mean, that was really, I mean, I started actually from the beginning of the year, from January. It was like, I could feel good about the business. I'm excited about what we have to do next. It's a great time to raise around. All of our numbers are looking really good. So, started putting a deck together. And obviously, just when I was about to start having first meetings was when lockdown started getting really serious. So, we did the whole fundraise start to finish with no in-person meetings and Highland and Stan Laurent, who, who led our round, I hadn't ever met face-to-face. I'd done, you know, I don't know, maybe a sort of good 10, 20 hours of Zoom calls with him. But from the first meeting all the way through to signing our deal, we'd never met in person. Very good. What were the pluses and minuses of doing a raise over Zoom? The pluses were total focus like i could because normally you have to do loads of traveling i'd actually bought a really expensive electric bike an eye-wateringly expensive electric bike <laughs> solely for the purpose <laughs> solely for the purpose of fundraising because i thought i've got to go to so many meetings and dot around the city and and you know even though i fly abroad for it that i want to optimize my transport and actually i was able to do probably double the amount of meetings per day and per week because it was just back-to-back Zoom calls. Probably for the first three weeks of it, I had maybe 10 or 12 calls a day, every day with different funds. We, we, ended, we had not even just funds we met, but we ended up with something like 40 to 50 people actively engaged with our process. So people who went to the kind of like due diligence phase of, which was way too many, it was a big, big mistake from, from my end of things. So the positives were you could be really efficient about it. You could be totally in the zone. And the negatives are having people who don't have their video on on a Zoom call. You know, if you turned up to a, to a meeting to raise a Series B with, a, with an investor and they had like a bin bag over their head and, <laughs> and, and you, you would be like, are they concentrating? So that's that's kind of difficult to manage. I see these people all the time, though. You go in to talk to them and they're just on their laptops, booking their flights or ordering some food or booking a restaurant on their phones. So I, I would tend to say to people that I had audio problems with my computer and it was really helpful if I could if I could kind of partly lip read and then just try and put <laughs> cameras on. And it really works. It really works. Like, like, cause like, you know, I catch myself doing it as well. There'll be a meeting that I care about that I'm engaged in, but then cause you're on a zoom call, you'll just be doing your emails or like twiddling your thumbs or something. So that's one part of it is kind of like maintaining momentum. And then it's just, it's just sales. You know, you're, you're like the, 
you have to put so much energy into pitching the business over and over and over again and delivering all your funny little jokes as if it's the first time that you've ever said them. And that is genuinely exhausting. You know, if you've got 50 pitches in a week and each one, it's like you've got to, you've got to throw your whole self at it. It's draining, but the adrenaline is also there to help you do it. On the downside, we, we talked about this aboard before we decided to raise it the time when coronavirus hit, hit, which was we thought maybe people just wouldn't be investing or something. I'd say probably 30% of funds I'd talked to just said, we're not doing new investments because we're focusing on propping up our existing portfolio. The thing I didn't anticipate was that there was actually loads of deals on the market because you had people who six months ago were going out raising at a 200 million valuation who were suddenly coming back to market raising at 100 or 150 because their plans had changed and they had less runway. So rather than it being, oh, there's not many deals and people aren't open for business, it was actually some of the VCs had the biggest quarter ever because there were great value deals on the market and they were trying to process them. So that meant that, yeah, we probably quite a few people churned out of our process just because they didn't have the bandwidth to take on a new deal. When you said that you'd done that many pitches, it it struck me that you weren't necessarily following your same process that you do for recruitment with your with your fundraise and you were kissing too many frogs. It's totally, totally true because part of it is if I get to the point, because you, you can, when you're hiring, if you don't find anyone who's like an A player who you love, who you really want to work with, you just stall the hire. You're just like, like, this is really annoying. We just have to fill up the pipeline again. With fundraising, you're watching the old bank balance dwindle down and it's like the heat is on. And in the back of your mind, you're like, right, well, I mean, we're, we're really lucky in that I've always had a great relationship with lead investors. I've genuinely loved working with them. And it's the same for Highland, who's come into this round. It was like a real dream investor for us. But I'd make a hell of a lot of compromises for, for 20 million quid. So, so cast the net wide. And also, I like VCs. Everyone, everyone often slags them off. And, but for the most part, they're interesting people who have a unique view on the market, who are good at pattern spotting, and who can road test your strategy, at very least, when you're pitching to them. So yeah, I cast the net too wide, that's for sure. We had a kind of long list when we reached out to people. I think we were really surprised by the response rate. So I was expecting to have far fewer calls, basically. Yeah. And where does that where does that twenty million get you through to? So it's a really good question. We I mean it gives us more than two years of runway for sure, even on our kind of most aggressive expansion plans. The majority of it we're putting into product development. So, you know, that goes on the funeral side of it. We were obviously talking about it before, diversifying our funeral offering. Because right now, only kind of one in 20 people wants the type of funerals that we do where, you know, they're doing most of the organizing. So, so there's product development. We're launching a telephone wills service. So that's, you know, we have a customer demographics ranging from an 18-year-old to a 106-year-old. And I don't know, many other, don't know many other tech companies that have that, but if people are less confident online or they're older or their situation is more complicated than telephone wells, we're also going to do lasting powers of attorney. So there's kind of lots of product development and technology to build to be built across the spectrum. The other side of it is building out our team. Because even with kind of you know 100-ish people now, I would say we're still verging on dangerously understaffed compared to the kind of customer volumes that we have. So we've got some hiring to do, got some really interesting leadership team positions to kind of fill out departments to build out. And then the last one is on the partnerships front. 
where you know we're just scratching at the surface in terms of the number of charities that we work with or the retail banks that we partner with and we can spread ourselves much much further reach way more customers and help them take care of this sort of stuff i think if we kind of really start to build up our partnership side of our organization organization and is it is your own the uk do you go global Really good question. I mean, we've done we've done a big bit of work on the kind of global opportunity and which territories we'd go to next. Right now, we're focused on the UK, and I think we want to get to kind of you know close to ten percent market share overall on the services that we offer before we look to uh, go and do it in another territory. So it's kind of experiment and grow here, develop the playbook, and then go and do it in our in the next territory. Okay. And your hundred people are you office based or are you all remote normally? Right now we're all remote. Normally we're all in we're all in the office, and I think it's really difficult because I'm kind of enjoying it, and I think a lot of people are in a lot of people are enjoying parts of working from home. But the only reason why I think it's going well for us is because we know each other really well, we get on really well, we've spent loads of time together, and I'm quite keen for us to get back to the office. But it might be on a much more flexible basis, or you know, I've seen some interesting proposals of people you know average days of week that you're in the office and that sort of thing i think we'll go for something more flexible we used to do one day a week work from home i think i think we'll increase that probably okay i mean i saw some data from microsoft in i think harvard business review the other week saying that on average microsoft staff days had were two two hours longer per day really yeah and they and the you know teams chat had gone by up by 50 percent between 6 p.m and 12 p.m and so over time i think that could just take some of the gloss off it well and i'm talking to you and you're in france so you know you're, you've taken work from home to like from a different home you've gone to the another extreme well i just thought you know i live in quite a small flat with quite a lot of other people who i love i mean they're really good they're really good friends of mine but there's only so many times you can just look at your own friend over and over again <laughs> and have the same conversation with them over a period of months so so luckily someone i knew rented this place in france and i just thought i could probably go there for for a couple of weeks and do some work i only arrived yesterday so luckily the internet is good enough and stuff but but yeah i mean i've never done anything like that before i've only ever been in the office so it's quite interesting to experiment with more remote working and there are definite benefits indeed access to low-cost red wine <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> um dan what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier i think it's my own limits. So I got like properly burnt out maybe two years ago. And I'd always prided myself before on, I could do more work for longer hours than almost anyone else I knew. And I always thought, oh, is this burnout thing just like, is it just a sign of weakness or people who can't, who can't actually make it? And then it got to the point, it got to, I came out of a meeting with our COO Constance and I just literally collapsed in the street. And it was at genuinely a point where for like a week, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't like read. I couldn't read a book or something. So I couldn't, t- couldn't process information at all. Could like barely talk, was like really depressed, not in terms of feeling sad, but just didn't want to do anything and didn't get any joy from, you know, any of the stuff that I would normally enjoy. And I think I started to realize what a huge price it is to pay to bury yourself in work like that. So I definitely didn't know my own limits. And then, you know, recovering from something like that takes, I'm probably still recovering from it now. You know, it easily took me six months to get back to like a really good level of performance. 
and there's always sort of like the shadow of that sort of thing that follows you around and i know so many people that's happened to and i think the dangerous thing is people where you know if you don't get to the point of collapse if you if you continuously find ways to keep yourself going to work you get more and more miserable and further away from kind of like yourself and what you want to do outside of work and that's where you meet these kind of miserable incredibly successful multiple entrepreneur billionaire people because they are a hyper attuned work machine but very often or at least a at least sometimes have kind of just lost touch with why the hell they're doing it in the first place. So I think that's the real risk. If you don't keep an eye on it is you just become a great CEO and just an absolute, just a bit of a boring, sad tosser, <laughs> which, I, which is, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sure lots of people describe me as that anyway, but that's what you're playing with. That's what you're gambling, which is high, a high price to pay if you get it wrong. Fantastic. Um, so what do you do now differently? What what have you changed? You limit your work hours or you... No, I still work pretty hard. And part of it was having a coach. I've got an amazing coach called Lucy Funnel who has genuinely changed my life. So part of it is having someone whose responsibility it is fundamentally for me to not wreck myself. Then a lot of it, I think, is just, it's not rocket science at all, but stuff like decent nutrition and i'm not talking about vegan goji berries whatever i'm talking about like i would just eat like 40 eggs in three days because that was all i had in my <laughs> um, so just like decent nutrition good sleep exercise like making sure that you're hanging out with your friends you know and just just balance in life the biggest difference is is having a having a bigger team of exceptional people because there was just a point where we had a fifth of the headcount in our team that we needed to do things properly so then you're just stretched in so many different directions and dan what um what books have you read along the way that have had an impact on you that you think other people should pick up there's business books are really interesting because I, I i've never read a business book cover to cover other than one because you know you know it's the type of thing you open up you open it and you kind of get a really good sense of the flavor of the book after one page or something <laughs> um, I think Work Rules is a really good one by Laszlo Bock, which is the kind of Google hiring experimentation stuff. I really liked how systematic they were in their approach. It's also just genuinely interesting. It's, I think it's one that gets brought up. I, I resisted reading this for so long, but how to win friends and influence ah, people. You know what? I, I, I did the same. I thought it, everybody mentions it. It must be a load of rubbish, but it's actually fantastic. It's, it's amazing. And then the people who are mentioning it were all these kind of like sort of like knobby people who like thought they had really good, who thought they were really influential and had loads of friends, but actually were really were not like that. So I thought, oh, this must be terrible. But it's actually really good. And it's like, it's not how to manipulate and abuse people. It's just kind of how to be a good person and do that with other people. My favorite book on sales, it's called The Challenger Sale. That I think is phenomenal. Um, even though I only read about 10 pages of it. Um, <laughs> and another phenomenal book that I maybe read 50 pages of, but genuinely changed the trajectory of the business is called Play Bigger, which is about category design. So, you know, kind oh, of rather yeah, yeah, than... yeah, no, yeah, no. Um, Brilliant. I thought, I thought that was sensational. That whole, that sort of product design, but categories, yeah, no, I think that, I think that is, I think that's sensational as well, yeah. Complete because I, I do think I, I think it makes sense because I think people think about businesses in terms of categories. Like in your I think in your brain it segments companies in terms of categories. So it makes sense to consumers. It also makes loads of sense when you're pitching to VCs. Because if I said to someone, 
you know, you know if we're if we're going to be the best will writer in the world, it's so different to how we explain what we do as a business, where we're kind of tackling the entire problem of how you help people plan for and deal with death and how you join up those services. And it means that you know your aspiration as a business is so much bigger. So I thought that was great. I also really like it's one other book. This is probably verging on all the business books that I've read, by the way. Um, <laughs> there's one called there's one called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is amazing mainly because it just reads like a kind of soft porn book where you know it's 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 written it's the only one that i read cover to cover because it just it was kind of written like a quite childish story and it actually enabled you to read the whole thing in one go but i thought that was really good and we actually did then that's run by something called the table group that does sort of executive training sort of things and we actually did that as a leadership team and it was really game-changing and everyone read the book really helpful kind of conversation starter for leadership teams on you know do we really trust each other are we comfortable failing around each other are we comfortable giving each other feedback which is really fundamental yeah dan that's brilliant thank you very much indeed so from not having any books to recommend a slew of books to recommend that's brilliant look it's been absolute pleasure chatting today uh all the best and thanks very much indeed for coming on thanks so much for having me thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did as a token of your appreciation it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review those reviews really help other people find this podcast for all information relating to this episode you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast and there you'll find some fantastic show notes additional reading and links relating to this episode you can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter the simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and i'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that i've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.